0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, for those of you who haven't been here, we're in our final week of our stewardship series, Greenfield at the Movies. Uh, We have followed Simba, the Lion King, as uh, he initially at least leaves his homeland and his calling and runs away to the land of Hakuna Matata, only like the prodigal son, to remember who he is and return to the pride land to take his rightful place. And we were remembering that stewardship begins with remembering who we are and then claiming those gifts, our time, our energy, our money, and making them part of the answer rather than part of the problem. Last week we followed George Bailey uh, from the great Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, and we were remembering together that really the beginning of all spiritual journeys is gratitude. It's thanksgiving. And George poses for us at least a couple of questions. Um, how will this life in this world be different because you are in it? And secondly, how would, Green, how would the world be different if Greenfield was not in it? And so today, I'm always intrigued when I discover the connection between things that I have already known, but have never really seen the relationship between them. Sometimes I figure that out for myself. Uh, More often than not, it is people who are more perceptive than I am who show me those connections. And um, for example, I had an American history professor, Dr. Spencer, who one day gave an entire lecture on uh, Frank Bond's wonderful uh, children's classic, uh, The Wizard of Oz. And he was reminding us that that story has an historical context. Um, It was written during um, a a time when uh, the populist movement was going on, and so some of the characters in that story may actually represent political figures of the time. It was written during a time when the gold standard was being re-examined, and so it's no accident that it's a yellow brick road that they take on the way to the Emerald City. Well, some time ago, um, my eyes were open to yet another layer of that wonderful story when Bill Beekner, one of my favorite Presbyterian writers, Bill suggested that this story could only have been written in the context of a of a Christian culture. In fact, he goes on to say that the story of this old familiar tale uh, has many parallels to the story of Jesus in the Gospels. And uh, the more I thought about it, the clearer that became to me. So not that you need reminding, but let me remind you. Uh, It begins with a girl named Dorothy, who's growing up on a farm in Kansas along with her aunt and uncle. And Dorothy and her little dog, Toto, wind up in a cyclone, the kind of thing that happens in that part of the world. And they are taken to this distant land known as Oz. Now Oz is in every way um, more attractive and more appealing than the farmland in Kansas. You remember that scene where Judy Garland opens the door after they have crash-landed, everything has been in black and white, and now it is in technicolor, and Dorothy is absolutely amazed by the wonder of it all, and yet it is a sign of her early maturity that while she recognizes this to be so attractive, she also knows that her true home is back in Kansas. I think it's the author's way of trying to say to us that escapism, no matter what form it takes, um, whether that be fantasy or denial, whether it be drugs or alcohol, that fantasy um, is never the way to our deepest joy. The real world that we live in is finally the only one um, that can support our weight. And so Dorothy, though intrigued, knows that she has to find her way home. She's told that there is this wizard over the Emerald City who knows everything and has great powers and can help her with that goal. And so you remember the munchkins all around her? She sets off on that yellow brick road. And along the way, she encounters these unusual companions. Each of them, in their own way, just like Dorothy, thinks that they need something that they don't have but that the wizard can give to them. So, for example, she meets a scarecrow who very much wants a brain because he says, the straw in my head is just not adequate to meet all the complexities of this life. She meets a tin man who very much wants a heart because he says, I feel like I'm as hard as this metal that I am made of. And then she meets this huge, lovable lion who has great strength, but who is a coward at heart. And of course, what he wants is courage. And so the four of them, this little community set out together to the Emerald City, hoping that the wizard will give to them what they don't have. They have many adventures. Uh, Many terrifying things happen along the way, most of them at the hands of the Wicked Witch of the West. And yet, in scrape after scrape, they somehow manage to survive. And interestingly enough, whenever it is a physical challenge, it is the cowardly lion who somehow faces up and gets them through. Whenever it is a practical or intellectual one, it is the man of straw that figures things out. And as far as feelings go, it is the tin man who is so moved by the suffering of others that they have to actually carry an oil can with them everywhere they go so that he will not rust. One of the terrifying episodes that they encounter happens just after they have um, seen the Emerald City for the very first time. The yellow brick road leads them through a field of poppies where the wicked witch has cast one of her deadliest spells. And here's how that scene goes. When I gain those ruby slippers, my power will be the greatest in odds. And now, my beauty, something with poison in it, I think. With poison in it, but attractive to the eye and soothing the smell. And we'll pull you along. Oh no, please, I have to rest for just a minute. Toto, where's Toto? Oh, you can't rest now. We're nearly there. (laughs) Don't cry, you'll rust yourself again. Cover the thick of it. Forty wigs wouldn't be bad. Don't you start it, too. No, Uh, we ought to try and carry Dorothy. I don't think I could, but we could Uh, try. Len, yes. Uh, Oh, look at him. This is terrible. Here, Tin Man, help me! Oh, oh, this is terrible. You can't budge a inch. This is a spell. This is—it's the wicked witch. What do we do? Help! Help! It's no use screaming at a time like this. Nobody will hear you. Help! 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 Poppies. Poppies will make them sleep. And you could think about the wicked old witch as a metaphor for all of the forces that just want the public to sleep, to keep us from reaching the Emerald City, or maybe even the kingdom of God among us. All the spiritual snooze-inducing forces that are at work all around us. Sometimes we choose them, exhausted by all the complexities of life, sometimes feeling um, the compassion fatigue that people talk about. Just as the cowardly lion says, 40 winks sounds good, before flopping into the poppies, we may seek out our favorite methods of zoning out, of flopping into whatever numbing activity fits best. Another glass of wine, perhaps? Where is that remote? Another mystery novel? Pork and Pokemon? Sports and suds? Pick your poison. Whenever I see that scene, I'm always reminded of the disciples. When you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, on that fateful night, they have just finished celebrating a big Passover meal, complete with all of the copious food and wine. It's getting late. And Jesus has been talking about how he is going to have to suffer and they really don't want to think about that. The suffering of others, dealing with the pain of those who are in need can really feel like a weight that brings the sleepy eye to drooping. And so the disciples recline on the soft grass of the garden. He has pleaded with them to stay awake. But bodies, they need sleep. And apparently so do spirits. And it seems like our spirits fall asleep quite regularly, maybe even inevitably. I don't think it's all our fault. There are forces afoot that, just like that witch's spell, um, put us to sleep spiritually. Forces that profit from a docile populace that keep us just awake enough to locate our credit cards to buy the next big thing. Or just conscious enough to ask our doctor for the new designer drug that will make us less anxious. You don't have to believe in conspiracy theories to recognize the powers that want the public to sleep. Just sleep. A better health care plan that will benefit not just some but everyone? Impossible. I wonder who benefits from that. We can't take steps to roll back global warming. No, let's just pretend that it doesn't exist. Cynicism, another way that people choose to snooze always expecting the worst of any situation or person. The cynic provides himself, fr- tells himself not to be fooled, not to look foolish, and so he shoots down every new possibility. The cynic doubts her capacity to bring about any real meaningful change and so conveniently spares herself the hard work that such change would require. We are often weighed down with sleep, overwhelmed by it all. And yet there are these moments when we are awakened. By what? By God's spirit? A child or a grandchild in the car seat behind us all of a sudden starts to say something about God or about going back to church, and our hearts are touched A Swedish teenager named Greta gets up and challenges the whole world at the United Nations. And we are both convicted and inspired all at the same moment. A democratic politician reaches across the aisle during a contentious congressional debate and acknowledges one of his Republican counterparts as one of his best friends. And we realize what it could, what it should be like, We see the tears well up in a fellow parishioner as she shares how much it has meant to her to have all of these people praying for her as she goes through tests, to have so many people ask on a Sunday, how are you doing? And we realize our heart has been awakened. You know, the next couple of years are going to be tempting. You are going to be tempted like Dorothy and her crew, like those disciples in the garden, you are going to be tempted to sleep. Transitions are difficult. There will be a lot of hard work. The future is unknown. In fact that temptation is already alive, isn't it? It was part of your decision-making as you filled out the pledge card within the last couple of days. So tempting to just say wait and see. I'll just wait and see sleep sleep but as the story says that's not the way you get to the Emerald City so they finally get there and they are ushered into the presence of the wizard who turns out to be anything but what they expected just a simple old man manipulating these switches behind a curtain and yet The truth be told, though he was not what they expected, this old man behind the curtain has two different kinds of wizardry. One of those is that he is able to point out to each and all of them that they already have what they wanted. They possess it in seed-like form, the very qualities that they are hungering for. The problem is not that they have no strength, or wisdom, or compassion, the problem is that they are not aware of it, that they haven't claimed those gifts. And the second thing he does is to show them that things like wisdom and compassion and courage, they are not something that is just injected into us like penicillin by someone else. Rather, they come when we recognize the seeds of those qualities already within us, and then we begin to utilize them. Much the way you take a muscle that is small and out of shape, and you begin to use it so it becomes stronger. They need to participate in gaining those things that they thought only a wizard could give them. And it's at that point, says Bill Beekner, that if you will look at the kind of wizardry of Oz, it is very similar to the way Jesus lived out his ministry. You realize, don't you, that when he stepped on the stage of history, there were these fantastic expectations about what a Messiah should be like. The Hebrew people were so beaten down. They were so depressed. They saw themselves as being totally empty. They felt like everything had to be done for them. So they looked for a Messiah like King David who would come and do it all for them. But Jesus didn't turn out to be that kind of disciple, savior. Instead, what he did was to constantly come alongside people and say, I see more in you than you see in yourselves. The very first disciple that he called was a man by the name of Simon. He had spent all of his life fishing by the Sea of Galilee, selling those fish at the market. And Jesus came along to him and said, You have bigger fish to fry, Simon. I will make you a fisher." Of people, because Jesus never perpetuated dependency. He never infantized people by saying, I'll do it all for you. He saw sparks in them, he blew on them until they would glow. That's the wizardry of Jesus. In the Babylonian Talmud, there is a story about the day when the Israelites were set free from Egypt. And they are on their way to freedom at the sea that borders Egypt and the desert. Looking across the water, they can see the hills of Sinai. They anticipate the freedom that waits for them there. Behind them, Pharaoh and his army are coming after them. They can hear the pounding hoofbeats, the clang of the bouncing chariots. They can see the dust rising and getting closer. And so they turn to Moses, pleading for his help, looking for him to save them. Moses extends his staff over the sea, and nothing happens. He shakes it. Nothing happens. The people shout to him and at him with their frightened cries. The sound of the horses and the chariots and the Egyptian shouts are getting louder, and the people push closer and closer to the water's edge. With the cries of the people ringing in his ear, Moses shakes his staff even harder, mumbling a few choice words of his own. Over at the far edge stands Nakshon ben Aminidav, he, too, hears the hoof prints and the banging metal and the shouts. He sees the dust of the chariots. He looks at Moses still waving his wooden stick over the water. He looks at the distant shore where his freedom lies, and he jumps into the water. Now, Nakshon cannot swim, but he believes that he has no choice. Freedom is there on the other side, and he is not going back to Egypt. So while the rest of the Israelites scream at Moses, Nakshon ben minidove wades into the sea. The water comes up to his knees, and then his hips, and then his chest, and then his chin. And when the water reaches his nose... God looks down and says, finally. Finally, here is one person who is willing to risk everything for the sake of his freedom. Finally, here is one person who will take responsibility for his own well-being and not wait for or rely upon someone else to take care of him and save him. And so, as the water reaches Nakshon's nose, God instantly splits the sea and all of the Israelites cross to freedom. For the sake of one person, the whole people is saved. The gifts that you need are already in and among you. God asks, are you willing to risk? Because if you are together, We can do this. Amen.